0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Stephen Rogers, the other Stephen Rogers, um, to talk about accountability in state legislatures. This was published in 2023 by the University of Chicago Press. And this is a really interesting dive into our understanding of democratic theory and how we hold our representatives accountable, if we do at all, um, particularly at the state level, as opposed to the national level. Um, but I'm going to let Steve tell us all about that. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast, Steve. May I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this particular project?
0: Sure. Lily, uh, thanks for having me. Um, so as Lily said, my name is Steve Rogers, as the other Steve Rogers, not Captain America. My parents had no idea when they named me back in 1984. They now are aware. Um, but here, um, instead of I'm trying to save America, not necessarily through the Marvel universe, um, but instead trying to shed a little bit light on about how much other our democracy, particularly in our state legislatures, functions as we hope it would. Um, so here I'm an associate professor of political science at St. Louis University. Um, and then in this, I've been, I have this book that kind of addresses this important question for democracy. Of, do elections hold state legislators accountable for what they do? And so in here, this kind of question is interesting to me because if you talk to like, probably the everyday voter or just your neighbor or your cousin at Thanksgiving, most people probably don't know who their state legislator is, yet alone what they do from day to day. And so at least for me it kind of raises question of are elections necessarily fulfilling their purpose? In terms of holding state legislators accountable for what they are producing in the state capitals. And so, Lily, for example, like you are in Wisconsin, in which there has only been a little bit of tension within your state government and state legislatures, ranging from collective bargaining to districting um, to all sorts of issues. And this is kind of reflective of what we kind of see across the country. Um, so, for example, like in the last year or so with the Dobbs decision, we now recognize that now the decision about whether or not a woman has a To an abortion. It's going to be right left to our state legislators a little bit more. And in here, states are having these debates right now, and our elected officials in our state capitals um, are debating these as we speak. So Lily and I are recording this uh, in the first week of December, in which is like the opening. um, January, I'm sorry, That's okay. uh, <laughs> no. in this, the opening of many different state legislative sessions. And so these state legislators are going to tackle issues of abortion, collective bargaining, um, and many other issues, whether DEI, taxes. And then here, the idea is that those legislators are going to kind of be representing their constituents' interest, but it's largely unknown um, in terms of like whether they actually do this and then whether or not voters punish or reward them for doing this.
1: Yeah. And, and so, how how did you come to this particular question? Because it is, you know, we often have peop- lots of political scientists, uh, obviously, study, you know, the presidency or national politics or national voting behavior or national con- congressional or Senate behavior, um, and you're looking specifically at, to some degree, the question of the voters' relationship to their elected representatives in their state houses across 50 states, um, and most of the time, as you know, they don't know who they are? Mm-hmm.
0: No, so the way I came to this is it was actually while I was in college, and so when I was in college, um, I was an elections nerd, and I went to George Washington University, and then here, I had the opportunity to intern and then work with um, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. And so the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee is the national organization devoted to electing Democratic state legislators. And so then here, I was an intern. And at the time, the office only had about 10, 11 staff people. Um, And so then here, if you have like or have a child or you are a student looking for an internship, I really recommend getting internships, particularly sometimes with smaller offices, because then it allows individuals to kind of do a little bit more. And then here, what I was able to do is I got my um, hands dirty in polling data and like candidate recruitment. And probably as a 20, 21-year-old, I acquired an unusual amount of background um, in state legislative elections. And in here, one thing I kind of repeatedly kept on noticing is that first, people didn't really seem to know who the state legislator was kind of in the polling data. And then additionally, we also, like basically, there was giant swings nationwide Um, So this is back in 2006 and 2008 and in 2010 um, that were not necessarily that all that different from what we saw at the U.S. House level. And so in here, we all remember in 2006, the Democrats did very well in the U.S. House, took control of the U.S. House. And they also took control of over, I think, a dozen different state legislatures or state houses, chambers, I should say. Um, And then in 2008, Democrats again did generally well, and they did well at the state level. But then in 2010, many of us may remember that Republicans did quite well at the U.S. House level, and then they also did quite well at the state level. And so then here, I kind of saw this informally as like a political staffer. And then when I was kind of, when I went to graduate school and kind of started my dissertation and prospectus, I kind of tried to seek out this question a little bit more to kind of see it's like, what is actually going on within these elections? And so then here, the dissertation and now the book actually addresses a pretty basic question that has been addressed pretty thoroughly at, say, the congressional level in American politics. But here, the research on Accountability in state legislatures has been relatively less than we kind of see at the U.S. House level. And so then here I try to address in the book some very fundamental questions um, kind of related to accountability. Not only, for example, do voters actually hold their state legislators accountable, but is also what is kind of the role of elites in elections as well. Because here it's not only important to kind of consider whether or not a voter knows who their state legislator is or how they're voting on something, but even, do they even have someone else to vote for? Um, and so here, for example, if we just kind of look at elections from 2002 or 2001, I'm sorry, to 2020, over 83% of state legislative incumbents did not face a, pri- a challenger in their primary election. 45% didn't face a challenger in the general election. And if we kind of combine these two figures together, 35% of state legislators then face a challenger in either the primary or general election. And so then here, before a voter even steps into the voting booth, one third of ele- over one third of state legislators win re-election just by signing up. Now here, you may, the legislators may be doing excellent jobs and then don't need an opponent necessarily, However, what this can also kind of reflect is maybe even before a voter steps in, like the voting booth, accountability at the state legislative level is off to a little less desirable start.
1: And this question of accountability, I mean, is, is a, a key component of essentially the structure and working of a democracy. Um, and, and you kind of set it up in a comparative way with regard to moral hazards. Um, at the beginning of the book uh, and and talking about, you know, sort of if you hire somebody to do something for you, if they do it um, or if they don't do it. And when we are voting for somebody, we're hiring them, um, as you note. Uh, but then comes this question of how do we hold them accountable? Um, and sometimes state legislators or congressional members or Even presidents don't want us to hold them accountable.
0: No. uh, So here I wouldn't be surprised if not like so we can have this point in which if I was elected or I'm in a job, oftentimes we would probably always want to do what we wanted to do, you know, sort of thing. Um, However, um, we are beholden to our bosses, whether it be in academia, like say the chair of the department, or if you're in any sort of business, there's. Unless you're the owner of the business, you're still kind of hell like, there's someone you're reporting to. And then here, in terms of accountability within state legislatures or any elected office, one of the fundamental ideas, or at least one of the perspectives, is this moral hazard perspective, um, in which a way that, like, legislators will do what their bosses want, where here the bosses are going to be the voters, in which um, is that okay, we're going to put you into office, and then hopefully you will perform. And if you do not perform, then we will fire you. And so here, or we'll punish you at the polls. But if you do perform, we can reelect you and send you back. And so this is kind of a, like, democracy 101. Um, but in this, is like, so I'm just kind of going at it from this perspective of elections, kind of solving this moral hazard problem. Now that said, we can also be thinking, so I, there's some people may be reading the books and it's like, well, there's Professor Rogers, there's a different way to think about elections as an elections as a solution to an adverse selection problem. Or more informally, what we are doing is we're choosing legislators based off their policy positions more so than trying to hold them accountable or punish or reward them. And now here, many political scientists make this argument and it is a very valid argument um, however, I do believe that probably we would all agree that elections are operating a little bit in both ways. And then here, I can pretty easily identify a lot of legislators who are elected, who probably don't represent their districts very well. And then here, the selection account of, a, uh, of elections would say it's like no, they should be like representing their districts well. If selections operating. Um, And then here, though, I find that even with these unrepresentative legislators, they seem to continually be reelected, which would kind of push back against that argument. But fundamentally, what this book is addressing is a very democracy 101 question of do you reward or are legislators rewarded or punished for doing good or bad jobs within their legislature?
1: And you do quite a lot of um, quantitative evaluation throughout the book to sort of get at these questions of, you know, what the legislators are doing in office, um, where the voters' relationship comes into contact with them. Um, And without getting too much into the weeds, uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the data set that you pulled together to examine these sort of, as you say, sort of basic democracy election questions?
0: Sure. Uh, so here, I think this is one of the contributions of the book in which, again, there's been a number of previous research in state politics that has looked at um, whether or not, say, state legislators are held accountable. But there's no analysis, at least in my opinion, that does, or at least to my knowledge, that really pulls together nearly every state and then additionally goes over a 20 year time period and also kind of looks at different things the legislators potentially could be held accountable for. Usually previous research is kind of focusing on one aspect of accountability in maybe one year or a limited set of states. And these these pieces of research are very valuable, but hopefully accountability in state legislatures provides a more comprehensive view. And so to build this more comprehensive view, um, what I did is I collected data predominantly from 2001 to 2020 Sometimes I go back into the 1990s, and in here, things that I did is I I collected data, and other political scientists also collected data, like whether it be um, Nolan McCarty and Boris Shore, Carl um, Corner, and many many different uh, other people that I'm very grateful for uh, to. And so in here, <clears throat> excuse me. What I did is I uh, had all the election results for state legislatures in general elections. Um, myself and some very dedicated RAs collected all the primary election results um, from 1991 to 2020. And then what we did is we combined these results with different measures of legislative performance or partisanship. And so one thing that we collected was a presidential vote by state legislative district. And so in here, this is often used kind of as a proxy measure for district partisanship. Because here they're just maybe underlying a district is already like 60% Democrat, and we want to account for that in our analyses. Um, but more directly related to accountability, other things that I kind of used are say going over time how did the state economy perform? Or how did the uh, state perform in terms of education performance or crime performance? Um, Additionally, that's more at the kind of macro state level at the individual level, um, with the help of Nolan McCarty and Boris Shore, um, we collected the roll calls of state legislators going back until the 1990s. And so, in here, with these roll call measures, we're able to create um, measures of ideology, um, often referred to as ideal points in the political science literature. And then, using these measures of ideology, I'm able to evaluate whether or not as a legislator becomes more ideologically distant from their district or less representative of their district, um, are they held accountable? And I do find that they are held a little accountable, but not a whole lot. Um, Additionally, I look at whether or not a legislator voted with their party more often. And so in here, there's a political science research from the congressional level that shows if a legislator or a member of Congress is more loyal to their party, they're more likely to be punished at the polls. Um, I actually find the opposite. I find that they're actually more likely to be rewarded overall. Another measure that I use, that at least, in my, at least to my knowledge, has actually been used at either the federal or state level, is that Craig Bolden and Alan Wiseman um, have very nicely collected or an, or an estimated legislator effectiveness scores. And so here, this is a little bit different than ideology, in which legislator effectiveness scores aren't capturing necessarily whether legislators like representing on an ideological basis or a certain policy position. Instead these effectiveness scores are capturing can a legislator actually get something through the legislature. So they evaluate going from like the inter- bill introduction stage to the committee stage to whether or not it passes the chamber and whether or not it becomes a law. And so there's a growing literature um, kind of using these scores on Congress. And then here at the state level, uh, Alan Wiseman and Craig Bolden very generously uh, shared this data with me. And I evaluated, are legislators held accountable for that they are effective at getting policy through? Um, I find extraordinarily little evidence regarding that this is the case. And so then here, statistically, it's almost kind of a random chance. I did find some states, I think about three or four, where I did find accountability, but I'm looking at 48 states and, or I think a little fewer than that. Um, And for most states, uh, there's no relationship happening. And so here, one of the things in the book that I'm trying to do is I am doing a search for accountability. And then here, one thing um, as social scientists or scientists in general know, is that you can't really prove or provide like a null result. And so here I am not going to make the claim whatsoever that there is no accountability in American state legislatures. But at least in my analysis that I've kind of looked at, um, I find a lack of evidence to support the hypothesis that, say, state legislators who perform well receive more votes um, in elections.
1: And, and you start out, I mean, I love when people quote the federalist papers to me Um, and you start out obviously with Madison, the laboratories for democracy, but you also talk about um, the idea of how the election and the, and the people are supposed to hold whoever we elect accountable. Um, And that's discussed in a number of federalist papers and by the founders in a number of different ways. Um, and what you're finding in this contemporary period is that the state legislatures are not necessarily laboratories of democracy.
0: Uh, so here in terms of, I think state legislatures can be laboratories of democracy. And then here, so this is like, uh, for those less familiar, this is a quote from Justice Brandis, like um, kind of regarding actually a case regarding um, an Oklahoma ice mill. Um, but, and then here, but the idea behind the Laboratories of Democracy is that by having this federalist system, then here there can be certain states that kind of experiment with policy. And then here with ex- experimenting with that policy, maybe we can find good policies or policies that we want that we implement in other states or even at the federal level. And so then here, probably the most or prominent recent example is like the Affordable Care Act, which was had a lot of roots or overlap with the Massachusetts health care reforms that preceded it. And so then here, we can have these different policies that are kind of percolating in states. But here, what accountability in state legislatures would kind of push on is that I don't know if the scientists in these laboratories are actually being held accountable for what they're doing. And so states can then innovate in these policies, but voters may not actually want those policies. And now here to be clear in my work, I don't necessarily take a strong position on representation because here there could be legislators could be performing well. And then for listeners who are interested in this, um, I strongly recommend uh, Devin Cawhee and Chris Warshaw's recent book uh dynamic democracy in which takes a much more thorough look at representation within our state governments i'll be upfront in which i think uh devin chris and i don't necessarily come to full agreement regarding say optimist how optimistic we are but in terms of representation that is really kind of a book that i would recommend for interested listeners um, but going back to your point of the federalist papers I do believe that the founders sincerely did believe that, say, uh, voters would have more of an attachment to their local elected officials. However, when the founders were writing the Federalist Papers or the Constitution itself, they couldn't necessarily foresee how our country was going to be changing so for example, like Alexander Hamilton probably did not realize that, you know, 200 some odd years later, there would be a Broadway show that would take the world by storm featuring his name. And then Thomas Jefferson probably wouldn't realize that he would be able to read the same news that people were reading out in what he would or purchase in the Louisiana Purchase, like what he would read, like say, in Denver, it would be able to be read at Monticello. And so here we're just kind of thinking, like this kind of hinting at this idea that we are actually experiencing a much more nationalized kind of political system. And so here, for, like we're on Twitter or if we're reading the newspapers and stuff like that, we're here seeing a lot more national news. And then this is one troubling thing kind of about the democracy that I do try to highlight within the book a little bit is that there's less attention paid to state house government. And then in turn, the voters, even if they wanted to, it's really hard for them to learn. Um, So for example, in the book and kind of this data, some other data that I collected um, with the help of the Pew Research Center and then a former periodical, the American Journalism Review, they documented how many reporters are devoted to state house government. And in here, since the turn of the century, so since about 2000, there are one-third fewer reporters devoted to covering state house government. And so then here, actually, there are fewer reporters devoted to covering state house government than their credential to cover a single Super Bowl. And so if you think about that, we have 50 state capitals where we're trying to where most of the policymaking is happening in this country. But more people are probably going to be covering a Super Bowl itself than necessarily what um, our state governments are doing. And then in turn, this makes it a little bit difficult for voters to like not only know who their state legislator is, but also know what they're doing from day to day. And so here, for example, another piece of data that I kind of collected is that I conducted a nationally representative survey through the cooperative election study in 2018. And in this survey, I asked voters some very basic questions. Um, So here I did ask them if they could recall the name of their state legislator. And so in this, only 11% of voters could recall their state legislator's name. And now here recall can be a little bit harder than just identifying say a state legislator and so the Vanderbilt poll and the Center for Study of Democratic Institutions very generously let me put a couple of questions on their survey. And now, this is just of Tennesseans. But here, when I ask, say, Tennesseans, could you identify your state legislator's name from a list of five? Only 22% of Tennesseans could do that. And by comparison, this is 16% fewer than can identify their U.S. House member's name. And so voters largely don't seem to know who their state legislator is. Probably, yes, definitely, probably due to media coverage. And then they also don't really know what they're doing. And so here on the national survey, I also asked voters, can you tell me anything that your state legislator has done for their district? And so this was a survey in which they could tell me anything. And I'm gonna concede, I could not check whether or not for all these voters, like whether or not a state legislator met them for coffee or provided more litter cans. But here in this question, over 75% of voters just explicitly told me no or don't know. And so the other 25% told me something, but odds are this something was a little open of an overestimate because I did get responses kind of that were clearly about U S or national or federal politics but here, three-fourths of voters can't tell me anything their state legislator did for them. And so with this, I think it'd be a little bit tough before voters to hold their legislators accountable for what they do if they don't know anything that a legislator did. Now, is this all the voters' fault? I do not believe so. Again, going back to if you open your newspaper, like probably this week, you'll see something about your state legislature, I hope, because all the <laughs> sessions are starting Um, But in a typical week, you're going to hear more about Donald Trump or Joe Biden or some catastrophe or gridlock that's happening in the U.S. Congress before you're going to hear something about your state legislator.
1: Unless it's maybe like the Texas legislature, which we seem to hear a lot about these days. That's true.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of that is also because it's a national issue of immigration policy where they're shipping or not ship, but, you know, busing. I was, uh, I was
1: talking about abortion, but sure. Texas is doing all the things. <laughs> yep.
0: <yeah. laughs> Super. <laughs>
1: um, and so in, in this context of, you know, how how it is that voters have a really hard time being able to hold their state legislators accountable because they don't know a lot about what's going on. Um, it's not necessarily in the, the news that they consume on a regular basis. Um, we also have this question of things like incumbency um, oh. that you get into a bit. Uh, and the fact that oftentimes, as you've noted already, there aren't challengers in the primary. There aren't chan- ch- challenges in the general election. So you have somebody who is in office for term after term after term. Um, and sometimes they're in super safe seats. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about how that also challenges the ability of somebody to hold their elected state legislators accountable?
0: No, Lily, this is a phenomenal point. Um, And then one I think you're probably very familiar with being in Wisconsin, in which, again, I don't like a lot of times people read the book or my work and it's like, oh, I'm throwing the voter under the bus all the time. But in it, the voter is not only having like a problem, say, with the media, as I talked about. But additionally, sometimes it's just going to be hard to throw this incumbent out of office, particularly due to the issue that you raised regarding um, partisanship of districts. And then one of the contributions, I hope, of the book is that it does bring a lot more data to this question. And then one thing that I did collect or gathered um, through my efforts and also efforts of, say, Daily Coast in collecting presidential election results. um, Also, Chris Warshaw has collected a lot of data on this subject. But one thing I was able to kind of put together um, was, okay. so here we're thinking about challengers. We're thinking about incumbents and kind of question you raised in which it's like, well, if I am a Republican, I'm not going to run in a district that's 60% Democrat to start. Or if I'm a Democrat, I'm not going to run in a district that's 60% Republican. Because in this, state legislators are not stupid, and they often do not want to lose. And if you're going up against a 60% district, it's like, okay, we're probably not going to do too hot. Instead, what legislators are probably going to want to do, or potential challengers are going to want to do, they're going to want to run in districts where it favors their own party or are a little bit more close and so then in this one thing that i actually do more so in another paper um is that i kind of look at the number of districts that let's just define as close and so here i'm going to define a district as close if a district had between 45 to 55 percent Um, presidential vote for one of the two major political parties. And so in this is going to be those more moderate or more moderate districts, at least in terms of voters. And if we use this definition of close districts and we go back to the Gore-Bush election, whether it be in in, in the year 2000, about 25% of state house districts would be defined as close. So this is about a fourth. But then if we jump to the 2012 election, Between Obama and Romney, then here about 20% of state House districts would be defined as close. But then if we jump to our most recent, like general or major general election between, um, say, Biden and Trump, if we use the 2022 district lines, then only 15% of state House districts are close. And then unsurprisingly, during this time, the amount of districts that are more extremely partisan, so say maybe more than 60 percent for the Democrats and Republicans, they've each increased for both sides of the aisle by at least 7 percent. And so here we've gone from 29% or 28% partisan Republican districts in 2000 to 36% in 2022. We're going from about 24.5% partisan Democratic in 2000 to 32% in 2022. And so what this is doing is that, again, before the election even starts. Now, if you're in a 60% Republican district, a Republican can lose, that election does happen, but it's pretty gosh darn rare. And so, if we are having pretty much pretty much about 67% of all districts be at least favor one or two political parties by 60% or more, it's gonna be really hard for a, a validator to kind of throw an incumbent out of office. And then, one thing I do find as kind of an indirect effect of these bipartisan like, districts. Is that it actually appears in more recent elections, particularly that legislators in these more partisan districts actually have a stronger incentive in order to represent the extreme parts of their party than necessarily the more moderate parts of the district. So to conduct through this, what I do is I conduct a statistical analysis in which I include a measure of how distant is a legislator from their, like what I estimate to be the median voter. And so in this, what I'm just kind of doing is, okay, what is the ideological distance from the legislator from the typical voter in their district? And then what I find is that in good news for accountability is that in districts that are, say, 60% or less, or these more competitive districts, I do find that a legislator, if they provide better representation for the median voter, they will get an electoral reward. And so this reward is small. It's like less than 1% for like a standard deviation increase in the the distance measure I'm using. But it's there. However, if I shift to these districts that are 60% more for one of the two parties, then I find the legislator is more likely to reclaim their office if they are more extreme. And the reason for this is because actually in primary elections, in state legislatures, I'm not gonna make this claim for other offices, at least what I find is that a legislator provides more extreme representation, they are less likely to face a challenger, and then they are overall more likely to win the renomination. And so if we kind of think about the different stages of our electoral process, Due to these increasingly partisan districts, a lot of legislators actually have greater incentive in order to provide representation to their primary electorates. And then this is consistent um, with research or surveys done of state legislators uh, done by Dan Butler and Laurel Harbridge in which legislators will report that they're actually often more fearful of their primary electorate than their general election electorate. And so, With the increasing kind of polarization that we're seeing in state legislatures, I can't necessarily say X to the Y to Z on this, but here it's probably a little bit likely that these primary elections and these more partisan districts are contributing to the representation that we're seeing in these legislatures.
1: So, Steve, what's the solution?
0: (laughs) Uh, This is a very, again, a good question. And regrettably, I don't have a good answer. Um, and so this is a question that I have literally gotten since day one of this project or day one of kind of my conclusions. And what I would say is that there are small fixes that we can kind of do. So, for example, one thing, one thing that we've talked about today is the lack of challengers in state legislative elections. Now, one thing that I have found is that there's some states like Maine and Arizona that have public financing of campaigns and I do find And So for less familiar reader listeners, a publicly financed campaign is when, if a legislator collects X number of contributions, campaign contributions or signatures, um, the state government will then provide them funds to run their campaign. Um, and so this is kind of meant as a good d- d- democracy thing to kind of take the influence of money out of politics because you're not getting as much money, say from a corporation, but you're getting it from a public source. And so this is going to make it a little bit easier for a, legisl- a challenger to run because they don't have to ask all their friends and family for money. And then in this, I do find that there's an increase. For example, uh, if we had public finance campaigns, then um, challengers would be more likely to run. Additionally, I do find if you increase state legislators' salary, in which it's like, okay, it makes it a little bit more of an attractive job, legislators are more, or challengers are more likely to run. Or if you shorten the length of the legislative session, So here we may not necessarily always want to go to work, you know, every week of the year, but if you only have to go to the state legislature for a month, you may be more likely to run. But even if I were to, for example, make every state, and this is a statistical projection, every state have publicly financed campaigns, have the highest salaries, so like those like in California, or even have the shortest legislative sessions, the levels of challenger entry wouldn't come near the levels that they are in Congress. And then additionally, district, like we can try... Making the districts more fair, kind of building off our previous um, topic, that would increase competition as well. But even if we made every district 50-50, we probably still wouldn't get there. Um, And so, at least on the challenger side, it's not looking that great. Another solution is that, okay, uh, Steve brought up the lack of media coverage. What if we just flood the world with media coverage? And in here, in some analyses, I do find that when there's more media coverage of the legislature, that voters know more about their legislature. And then additionally, they are also a little bit more likely to hold them accountable, which is good news. However, at least to get voters as knowledgeable about their state legislature as they are Congress. And in here for knowledge, what I'm using is like, do you even know what party controls your state legislature? So in general, only about 60% of people know which party controls their state house or state senate we would need to triple the number of reporters devoted to covering state government in order to just match Congress, not even exceed, just match. And now given that there's one third fewer reporters since the turn of the century, local news is becoming less, not more. I don't really see this happening in the future. So can we fix things on a smaller scale? Yeah. Are we probably going to get to a desirable outcome? At least in my opinion, probably not. And then some kind of dramatic solutions potentially to this problem is that what I would advocate is just make the process simpler. And because here, everybody's busy with their everyday lives, like in their personal lives, whether it be you have family or you have your own job, In politics, the average voter is expected to know, what is Joe Biden doing? What is my U.S. Senator doing? What is my U.S. House Rep doing? What's my mayor doing? What's my county counselor doing? What's my school board member doing? And so federalism does allow for more local control, but it also puts a lot of burden on the voter themselves. And so then here, one thing, and I, so we mentioned the Laboratories of Democracy earlier, it may not be a horrible idea to experiment with how can we simplify things in our legislatures. One thought is, do we need both a state Senate and a state house? And so if Congress, the Senate is representing States in state legislatures, the Senate is just bigger districts. Um, another, and so if we got rid of one of them, voters would have to follow a little bit less even more dramatic solution, uh, kind of advocated a lot by uh, Lee Drutman, is that do we shift away from districts? So here in Europe, many countries and across the world, um, there are proportional representation systems. And so a lot of time, like a lot of what I've said today is kind of like voters don't even know who the state legislator is. But more voters know which party controls. And if we switch to a proportional representation system, at least within our state legislatures, This would create complications in which there would be less individual representation. Absolutely conceded. But then a voter just needs to know which party they want to vote for. And then this would take away the problem of districting because there would be no districts. And then what we would then have is just like, okay, 60% of the state voted Democrat. 60% of the legislature is Democrat or vice versa. And then again, kind of speaking to Wisconsin, this is an issue that Wisconsin is definitely facing. In which there is dispute about okay, what is the translation of votes to seats in the legislature? And this issue has become such a big issue that now your judicial elections have almost almost entirely become not entirely that's too big of a statement, but it become very centered on how are they going to rule on maps? Yep. And if we switch to proportional representation, it would remove it would change the democracy in a big way. So I don't want to say this is a zero problem solution but it would make the situation a lot simpler.
1: Yeah, it certainly would at the state level. Um, and we do have Nebraska, right? They have, yep. they have one unicameral. Maybe
0: um, unicameral legislature, and they don't have official parties right? as well. And I'm going to concede, I do not study Nebraska very much in depth within my book. Um, largely, it's kind of a data question because i don't have party preferences um so it's met hard and difficult to met online preferences and so here yeah just again we have these laboratories and sometimes things will go wrong but sometimes things will go right and then if they go right we can maybe emulate that in other states
1: well um you haven't left us with a totally positive outcome
0: <laughs> i regret i regret you know i would I search, I want to find accountability, but as a Missourian and as a political scientist, but it's also, I think, important for us to recognize it's like, just because the founding fathers wrote something does not necessarily mean it came to fruition.
1: Yeah, um, that, that is true. Um, although there are originalists among us, um, uh, so Steve, now that you've written this really uplifting and, um, And, you know, wonderfully satisfying, but very good book. (laughs) Um, What are you working on now?
0: Uh, So, yeah, I have a few projects I'm working on right now. Um, One is still kind of focused on, say, what voters are feeling about their government. And then another project um, I'm working on is kind of actually looking at representation a little bit more. So in the first project, um, what I am doing is another issue that's kind of arose not only in national government, but state government, is regarding how much do you trust your government um, because here there's been a lot of dissatisfaction with government and trust is becoming like nearly at all-time lows a little bit and then one thing that I'm doing is I'm trying to dig in a little bit more into how partisanship affects trust of government because previous studies um, have largely focused on it's like okay if you're a Democrat then I'm gonna look at the correlation between trust and then whether to say Democrats control Congress or your state legislature and generally, what we find is that Democrats are more trusting the government when their party is in power, similar with Republicans. But one thing, and this is a little bit more on a methodological standpoint, is that we only kind of looking at this at single shots in time. And then one thing that I did on this cooperative election study is that I asked the same voters, what was their trust in government within the span of a few weeks? And then during those few weeks, an election took place. And then there, what I'm able to do is I'm able to kind of better identify whether or not partisans are actually trusting their government more or less before or after their government partisanship changes. And here, I generally find stronger evidence this within Congress. I do find a little evidence of this in state legislatures, but I don't want to run too far with it because my results don't necessarily hold up to every robustness check. Um, And then another project that I'm working on is focused on representation. And then here, one of the things that I did in the book is uh, uniquely and I didn't talk about is that um, I looked at legislators are held accountable for individual roll call votes. And here, it's very, very difficult to get district level measures of public opinion on an individual legislator's vote. Because we very rarely poll state legislative districts. And even when we do, the sample sizes are pretty small. But in a number of states, they have these things called veto referendum in which voters can veto a bill before they become law. And so voters are voting on the exact same bill that the legislator did. And then in the book, what I do is I demonstrate that as a, legisl- as a district comes, or if a legislator votes against their district's opinion, they aren't actually punished all that much, if at all, um, for these individual roll call votes. But following up on this question, we kind of using this data of, because I have these district level measures of preferences on bills, what we can do is we can also see like how much are legislators actually representing, you know, their districts. And then other people have done this predominantly at the federal level using kind of survey data and other measures. But here I'm using, and oftentimes this is actually like pro-choice, pro-life, and then there's legislative pro-choice, pro-life. But with these measures, what we I can do with Dan Butler and Zoe Nimerever is just look at the exact same bill and see how representative legislators are. And then we're still in the draft stage. I don't want to go too far with this. But in our initial findings, we find similar to other research that Republicans typically are less representative than Democrats of their constituents, of their constituents. But one thing that we find is that one of the reasons for this, at least within our sample, and this is not a random sample, I should emphasize, is that Republicans actually face bills that are brought up on the agenda that are more unpopular with their districts than Democrats do. And so Republicans may be actually, like we have all these findings, Republicans are less representative, but this may not necessarily be necessarily the Republican wants to be less representative, but instead the party leadership may be putting bills on the agenda that are unpopular themselves. And then a lot of Republicans may be holding their noses and then voting for the bill. And so here we're still kind of preliminary in that, but we have this advantage that we have the exact same bills um, that so voters and then legislators have to give their opinions on. But we're hoping to kind of shed a little bit new light on. It's like, yes, there seems to be a lack of representation, but maybe not. We've talked about political scientists talk about the importance of the agenda all the time, but how much have we actually investigated this in terms of its impact uh, and representation?
1: And it also sounds a little bit like it's some of the asymmet- asymmetry between parties with regard to the policies that they're being asked to vote for.
0: Right. And so then here, like democratic leadership is not putting to Democrats the same type of controversial policies that Republican leadership is doing. Yeah.
1: So, well, I hope when one of these becomes a book, you'll come back on the new books and political science podcast and talk to me about it.
0: Oh no, I'd love to. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity today, Lily.
1: It's it's my pleasure. I want to thank Stephen Rogers um, the political scientist, not the Captain America, um, for talking to me today about accountability in state legislatures. This is published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023. And people can buy it at the University of um, Chicago Press website, right, Steve? Yep, you can go to
0: the University of Chicago Press website. Um, and if you need a link to that, if you go to com slash book, you should also be able to go there.
1: All right, thank you so much for joining me today. Great, thank you.